Good morning. It is such a joy and honor to be here this morning with you all, uh, singing to God and uh, worshiping him. Um, it's always good when uh, my wife and I get to come back here to Hilton Head uh, to be with Todd and Cynthia. Uh, I get this nostalgic feeling of, of being back home in New York uh, at the gallery and worshiping God and serving together with these uh, two saints of God. And so it's such a joy to be here. Uh, my wife and I, um, we live in Atlanta now for the last six months, but originally I'm from New York, and so it's, we enjoy coming here every time, and we've been here for a few days, um, and we have been enjoying the weather, uh, sitting by the beach. Um, I, I do want to, because I've been asked quite a bit, um, explain why I'm wearing a sweater. Um, and please don't uh, think something's wrong with me. Um, my wife and I have been on vacation for about 30 days, and my shirts don't fit me. And so, <laughs> that's the truth. And so I am wearing a sweater. Uh, New Yorkers are resourceful, so that's what we, we did. Uh, we bought a sweater this weekend. Um, for the past few weeks, it's, it's a joy for us all to be included in this sermon series and to help wrap up what the pastors have been teaching and talking about uh, the names of God and I think the reason why the idea of names are so interesting to us is, one, because we all have a name this morning, but outside of hearing from the doctors, the first thing, it's a boy or a girl, the second thing spoken over our lives when we were born is the name that we carry this morning, the names, the names we have. We're intrigued by celebrities and what they name their children. And I don't know why it is, but it's a huge thing. Maybe because we want to name our kids, whatever they name their kids. But we journey along with people and names, and we define people by their names. It's interesting because I grew up in a home as the youngest of three. I've got an older brother, and I have a sister in between. And after my parents got married, they prayed for a child, and God gave them a boy, and they were ecstatic, and they were excited, and they named him Samuel, which means asked of God. And so there was a great celebration when my brother was born, and then they prayed again, and God gave them a girl, and they were ecstatic, and they named her Sharon, which means his song, God's song, or a beautiful fertile plains in the promised land, this rolling field. And so they stopped there. That's it. And then, surprise, I came along. And so you would just imagine the joy I would have as a kid coming along because the predecessors before me, Samuel, asked of God or Sharon, his song, A Beautiful Field, by that naming mechanism, my name could only be the best. You're progressing. They would have to have called me Hercules in order to keep that trajectory going. But instead, for some odd reason, they called me Stanley, <laughs> which means a stony field. And you shouldn't laugh, because who doesn't love running barefoot on a stony field or rolling around on a stony field? So growing up, I've always had this, gosh, I'm Stan, and they're just the coolest names, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a rock on a field, and I'm unique, because there aren't any rocks on fields nowadays. So, so. Stan, names are interesting because when we name our kids, we name them based on history or family name or continuing a legacy. 
We name them because we think the name's cool. Or if you were part of the Hebraic people at this time in the Old Testament, you named them based on what you wanted your kid to be, the legacy he should carry. But you see, what's so interesting about the names of God is this. The names given to God are based on the experiences the people had on earth when it came to knowing God. It wasn't who they hoped God would be, but it's who God was to them. And in their limited earthen language, they tried to conjure up a name to give God and describe him to themselves and the world who God was to them. And so in this limited language, whatever it might be, we come to the last name that we see comes from our text this morning, Psalm 23, verses 1 to 6, and the name given by King David to God was Jehovah-Roi, or God my shepherd. And so the text this morning comes from Psalm 23, and we're going to read verses 1 to 6, and we're going to take a look at this name of God that is so evident through this song, reads like this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." In this man's walk with God, David's walk with God, he comes up with a name, and it is Jehovah-Rohi, you are my God and my shepherd. And there are three things I think this text teaches us this morning. We learn three simple things. We learn about the good shepherd. Two, we learn about the provisions of the good shepherd. And finally, we learn about the promise of the good shepherd. Three things. We learn about the good shepherd, the provisions, and the promise. Let's take a look. Let's go. The first thing we learn is about the Good Shepherd. Like I mentioned to you already, this is a song, a soliloquy written by a man that was the king of the United Kingdom of Israel, a man by the name of David. But his story is introduced to us not as a king, but it starts off in his home, surrounded by seven other brothers in the house of his father, Jesse. And David was the youngest, and you could say from reading scripture that he was one who was pushed out, not thought much of by his father and his stronger, better-looking brothers. He wasn't the one picked to lead the army of Israel at his age. He wasn't the one who his father thought might be the soon-coming king of Israel. And so because his father and his brothers kind of pushed him to the side, he instead became his home's shepherd, looking after his sheep. But his story would continue from being a shepherd, growing to be a giant slayer, 
then a songwriter, and soon the king of a nation. And being a king of a nation, he became the lawmaker of a nation and also the leader of the armies with multiple victories under his belt. And so just based on his personal experience, he could have talked about a God who was a king or a warrior, a God who was a lawmaker or a strong man, but instead in his experience, he starts off by saying, if I could describe God to you in any way, it would be this, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. What's beautiful about the way we name God is anytime in a name we give God and speak about his sovereignty, indirectly we speak about our depravity. What do I mean? See, when you call God a name, you see something about yourself. When you say God is a father, what you're saying about yourself is I'm a child. When you call God healer, you're saying, I'm sick. When you call God provider, you're saying, I lack something. And so when David says, God is my shepherd, he's actually saying, I'm sheep. I'm a sheep. We're all sheep. Now, if you don't know anything about sheep this morning, he's actually taking a swipe at himself and the human race. You don't compliment someone by calling them sheep. It's actually an insulting term to call someone sheep. Why? Because sheep are not bright. They're not feared. There's no NFL team out there saying, oh, the Chicago Bears are coming. Well, we're the Scranton sheep. We're going to take you out. No one's afraid of the sheep. You've got the Jaguars. You've got the Rams. You've got the Giants, but no sheep. If you see a sheep, you don't have to run in fear. Sheep are known notoriously as not so bright. If there are a group of sheep walking and one walks off a cliff, you know what the other one does? Joins it off the cliff. And the third one goes off the cliff. And what do you think the fourth one does? Goes to Walmart? No, goes off the cliff. All of them just follow each other. They are an animal that has no offensive skills and no defensive skills. They are not to be feared, but they are fearful animals. They're scared. They don't know how to lead themselves, no sense of direction. And so David looks at his audience as he's writing this song, and he's saying, you are sheep. Directionless, aimless, afraid, scared. Not feared, but fearful. And it's amazing because he's writing this in a period where as the king of a large nation, he's experienced great wealth. He's experienced a strong and beautiful home. He has a mighty army. He's experienced a lot of things. But yet in this song, of all the things he has experienced, a home with many rooms, a job that paid well, a family that was thriving and growing, this is what he says. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything else. Why? Why does he say that? Point two, because he recognizes with the shepherd 
there are some provisions the shepherd provides. Now, in these six verses, there are a lot of provisions, and so I'm not going to go through all the provisions, but I want to touch on four that I think speak to us this morning, four provisions of this good shepherd. He starts off in verse 2 by saying, this shepherd, Jehovah Roi, makes me to lie down, makes me to lie down in green pastures. He doesn't ask me He doesn't get my permission. He doesn't offer a recommend. He makes me lie down on green pastures. And the image the songwriter gives us this morning is this image of rest. Rest. Because if there's anything, if you've lived long enough on earth that earth doesn't afford you, it's rest. Because we live in a world that says you've got to climb the ladder and you've got to achieve because it's about you and what you can do. And so we spend our lives trying to climb this ladder at the expense of our our family, at the expense of God, at the expense of our own health, our own sanity. And it's not rest that we get, but this world has a beautiful way of giving us stress. And many of us this morning are sitting here stressed out about something. We're stressed. We're running around restless because there is something we're trying to achieve because our identity is somehow attached to what we have and how we can prove to the world that we have made it, we have something. And what it does is make us run in circles and we spend our whole life trying to achieve and our whole life wondering, will we ever get rest? And David says, if God is your shepherd, he provides you rest, not stress. The money that can buy you a bed, but he says God gives you rest. He gives you sleep. How? Because we will spend our lives getting a degree or working a job just so we could sustain ourselves. And this is what he says about the shepherd. He makes me to lie down on green pastures. He makes me get rest on the thing that a sheep needs to eat. In other words, if you know this shepherd, he provides for you. It's not your job It's not your strength. It's not your wit or your wisdom. But he says, when you really know a good shepherd, the good shepherd is your real source of provision. He makes me lie down on green pastures. He provides for me. The second beautiful provision that the songwriter talks about the shepherd is in the continual verse, he leads me by quiet waters. Why quiet waters? Because if, there's, if there is anything about waters that we learn, it's this, waters aren't quiet, they're raging. Waters are never calm without any ripples. They come at us with waves. A tumultuous water is a water that is not controllable. And anytime you study Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you recognize that they, as a people, feared the water. They feared nature because they believed if you can control water, then you are God. And that's why they deified gods that controlled nature. 
because water symbolizes things that we can't control. I remember growing up, growing up in the city, my parents would bring us to the beach and I pretended I was a, an X-Men and my mutant power was I could look at the water and say, rise, and the waves would crash and I would impress my friends. They'd be like, man, you can do this. And I would always have one fool of a friend that would come and say, if you really can control the water, make it stop. And of course, I would just push him into the water so I could make him stop instead. But you realize at a young age, you can't control water just can't. You can go to the ocean right now and it'll come crashing at you. And David shows this glorious image to us. Circumstances that we can't control, that are beyond our ability, health, family, an economy, a job, a home, circumstances that you and I face that we wish we could get a grip on, that we could control, that we wish we just had an edge so we could stop it from raging. But yet, he says, you see, you can't control it. But when you know this shepherd, he leads you by quiet waters. The image he gives us is Christ on a boat. I don't know if you remember the story in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is on a boat and the storms are raging and filling the boat with water and the disciples are freaking out. They don't know what to do. They wake up Jesus and Jesus looks at the water and do you know what he says? He says, shut up and stay quiet. That's it. And what he was establishing at that moment is I'm the Lord of what you can't control. David said, when you know him as a shepherd, you realize that he's the one that controls what you can't. Your uncontrollable, unmanageable situation as a shepherd, he leads you by quiet, still waters. The third provision we learn in verse five, David says, he prepares a table before my enemies. Prepares a table, a meal, a supper before my enemies. Enemies. We all have enemies. And if you don't have enemies, that means you're not married. I'm joking. I'm kidding. Ha, 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 ha. I love my wife. She's amazing. She's the best. You should all tell her that <laughs> right after this sermon. You're the best. We all have enemies. We all have someone or something we fear. And it doesn't say the shepherd gives me the strength and the armor to fight my enemies, to kick out my enemies, but instead watch this image. He prepares a meal. The shepherd becomes a caterer. He prepares this meal before my enemies. It's an image of celebration. It's an image of feasting and rejoicing and sitting and enjoying with the shepherd. Not fearful, not running, not afraid. Why? Because I think David wanted to show us that when God is your shepherd, even when there are enemies sitting at your table, that God can turn what is a horrible, horrible situation into a joyous banquet. 
into a situation where you could feast in the presence of your enemies. I'm reminded of this image in my mind where Christ in his last supper was sitting at a table with his disciples and he looks at one of them and says, one of you will betray me. And he looks at Judas and the one who betrays me is going to dip with me. He looks at an enemy sitting at his table. Now, sometimes I imagine if I was Christ at the table and I knew an enemy was sitting at the table, I mean, I would, I would take out all my moves and I know nothing, but I would just start punching and kicking and say, how dare you sit at my table? You have to leave, good sir. You are not permitted at my table. Don't touch my food. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Because to Christ, his enemy wasn't something that should be feared. It wasn't something that should be forcing us to sing a sad song. In college, in undergrad, in engineering, we learned something called reverse engineering, where you work backwards in the process, and I want to reverse engineer Judas for you at that table this morning, because it teaches us about a good shepherd even strong. When you see Judas as an enemy, I could understand the frustration and the fear. But when you see a celebration in the enemy, it changes everything around. You see, because Judas sitting at the table meant something very different. If Judas wasn't sitting at the table, then Judas would have never gone to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and if Judas never went to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, he would never be able to kiss Jesus on the cheek and betray him. And if Judas never got to kiss Jesus on the cheek and betray him, then he would never be able, Jesus would have never been arrested by the Sanhedrin. And if Jesus was never arrested by the Sanhedrin, then he would not have been accused of a crime he never committed. And if Jesus was never accused of a crime he never committed, he would have never been brought in front of Herod for a conviction. And if he was never brought in front of Herod for a conviction, he would have never been transferred to Pilate for a conviction. And if he was never brought in front of Pilate for a conviction, then Pilate could have never condemned him to death on a cross. And if Pilate couldn't condemn him to death on a cross, then Jesus wouldn't have been beaten on his way to a cross. And if Jesus would have never been beaten on his way to a cross, then he would have been never crucified on a cross. And if Jesus was never crucified on a cross, he would have never been buried in a tomb. And if he was never buried in a tomb, he would have never resurrected on the third day. Your Judas leads you to resurrection. I think the songwriter was saying, when you have a table prepared, it is not a sad occasion. You can look at what you are afraid of and you can rejoice this morning why the good shepherd can turn it around for his glory. Provision three, provision four. He so beautifully says in verse four, the way he writes it, even though I walk through the darkest of valleys. Certain translations say it like this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the image the songwriter gives us this morning is, I'm alone. There are moments where I feel alone. I'm running alone, I'm working alone, I'm in a home alone, I'm in a marriage alone, I'm in life alone. And it feels dark. 
But yet he says, if God is your shepherd, you are not alone. Look at the way he says, though I am in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The shepherd is with me. He doesn't abandon me. And look at the poetic language he would use. The valley of the shadow of death. Listen, if I were to shut off all the lights in this building right now, dim all the windows, remove the sun from existence, it would be pitch black and there is something you would not get. You would not get a shadow. Jeff can't get one. The only way you can get a shadow is if there's some kind of light. Look at the way he terms even the moment where he's alone. He says, even if I'm in the shadow of death, for there to be a shadow means there's some form of light. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. When you see the shepherd like that, when you see a shepherd who gives you rest and who quiets what you can't control, when you see a shepherd who turns a situation into a feast and a banquet, when you see a shepherd who says, you're not alone, Hebrews 13, 5 sounds so much more the sweeter, where it says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Do you know how it's actually written in the Greek? It's actually written like this. I will never, 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 never leave you. The Greek, anytime you use that many words continuously, you are speaking of an infinite nature. And this is what it's really saying. I will infinitely never leave you. Now, all of that sounds great, but I know the question that rises, didn't know about you, but in me, it rises, it's this. How is this even possible? How is it even possible? This is, first of all, a psalm written by a king of a foreign land. And I'm in Hilton Head right now. This is written 3,000 years ago. I don't know how it even makes sense to me, but yet it's supposed to. I'll tell you how. Point number three and final point, the promise of a good shepherd. The first five verses points to a shepherd, but the sixth verse, he kind of turns it just a little, doesn't he? He says all of a sudden, surely goodness and love, or your translation might say mercy, will follow me, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mercy will follow me. Love will follow me. Goodness, me. I will dwell in the house of a holy, righteous God an unholy person is going to have great things happen. How is that even possible? And when I read that, I kind of laugh because I think, I think, David, did you forget what you just called us? You called us sheep. And if there's anything we are, it's this. We are foolish. We are sheep who try to climb and we fall. We mess up. In other words, forgive my bad use of this word, but as sheep, we are bad. We are bad people. We are envious and greedy and jealous. We, are, we hold grudges. We do things to hurt others. We try to go to God and we mess up and we fall and we climb and we fall and we climb. We are bad people. 
And we try, we do try. But yet the world gets the best of us at times. And I'm going to dwell in the house of God forever. And goodness and mercy is going to follow me. What are you talking about? And when you see yourself as sheep, what ends up happening is two things. You begin to see a God who you feel is far from you, a God who doesn't connect with you. Or you begin to feel like you don't connect with God. Either God is far or you are far from God. And Isaiah says it so well in Isaiah 53, like sheep, we all have gone astray. We've all made mistakes. And what we deserve was to sit in a corner and freak out about life and say, I don't know what's going to happen. But yet this is what's so glorious. You see, this is what the world says. God is here and you are here and you've got to climb your way to God. Just climb, just try and try, but we're bad sheep. And so what happens is while we're climbing, we fall and we climb and we fall and we climb, we fall, we climb, we fall. And in this journey, we get tired. But you see, that's not the gospel. The promise of the good shepherd is this. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, you don't have to do this, but I am the good shepherd. I come down to you. So when you feel God is far, he says, listen, I'm pursuing you that I'm coming down and not this, but this. But you can say, but Stan, I feel far from God. And Jesus in one sentence kills two birds with one stone. I am the good shepherd. And when you deserved as a sheep to be separate by yourself in a dark corner, I lay down my life for you. Do you see that? Because of our mess-ups and because of our failings, we could have said, I've got nothing going for me. And yet, Jesus came down as the good shepherd. And he took and fought our greatest enemy, sin and death, and he took what we deserved and he gave us what he deserved, which is life abundantly. And a great exchange took place in the greatest shepherd that ever lived, Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why Isaiah 53 says this, he's the only shepherd that became a sheep. Like sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And when you and I could have been sitting here saying, everything's going wrong, instead Christ said, I embrace you. Why? Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. No other reason. No other reason. And he took it on himself. All of our failings, all of our misgivings. And do you know what he gave us? He gave us his rest. He gave us his quiet waters. He gave us his life. That's why when I say, as a good shepherd, he lays you on green pastures. The reason I can rest is because when Christ came to this earth, 
he had no place to rest his head, no manger to sleep. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to sleep. The reason why you walk besides quiet waters is because Jesus said, just like Jonah was thrown into the tempest and swallowed by a whale, so shall I be thrown into the hurricane of death so that you could have quiet waters of life. The reason why we experience a shadow of death, listen, a shadow of a knife can cut you, a shadow of a lion can't devour you, and a shadow of death can't kill you. And the reason we face a shadow of death is because our great shepherd faced death itself, our foe on the cross. And when you see that, when you see a shepherd who pursued a sheep that were bad so that he could make us good in him, that he can give us rest in him, joy in him. Psalm 23 no longer becomes a 3,000-year-old song written by a king of Israel, but it becomes my song this morning. Stan Thomas, in 2013, at Hilton Head Island Community Church, it becomes my song too. And when you see this good shepherd in Jesus Christ, you recognize I can rest because there was no mountain he wouldn't climb and no sea he wouldn't scale for me. I can rest. I can endure any foe because he endured my greatest foe. And when you face the darkest of nights and he is your shepherd, when you face the darkest of nights and you don't know what to do, you could smile and you can walk through. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. I want nothing else. Let's pray. Jehovah Rohi, my God, my shepherd, we come to you with joy, not with fear not with worry, but we come with joy because in this we are confident that you are our good shepherd and we lack nothing. God, I ask this morning for your sheep to know you as their shepherd, that they would experience rest in you, that they would experience the tumultuous storms being quieted because of you that they would know that you can turn horrible situations into a banquet table, that you will never leave them, infinitely never leave them. God, I pray above all else that they would see you as a good shepherd who came down and laid his life down for his sheep so that we could experience your life and life abundantly. Would you carry us through, God? And would you help us say with joy, the Lord is my shepherd. You're all that I want. In your name we pray, amen.